0: New York tough means New York loving and I love New York and I love you and everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing.
1: Hello, and welcome to this emergency edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo just announced his resignation, which will be effective in 14 days. Exactly a week ago, the New York attorney general released a report that accused Cuomo of sexually harassing 11 women, most of whom were government workers. Since then, Democrats all the way up to President Joe Biden have called for his resignation and the New York state legislature said it would impeach and remove him if he did not resign. His announcement today was not telegraphed in advance. His lawyer started the press conference by rebutting many of the details in the attorney general's report, but later Cuomo said that he would resign rather than engage in a drawn out impeachment process. So it's been a while since we've done an emergency podcast, but here with me to discuss what just happened, our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us, politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Galen. And I should note that you were in the middle of moving when this news came out. It's the middle of August. Some people are on vacation. We're all scrambling. Nathaniel Rakich is also moving today. But uh, we are here to record this emergency podcast nonetheless. So thank you, Jeffrey, in particular, for uh, stopping halfway through your move to join this podcast.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're not seeing the rest of my apartment. It's in chaos. So I've got the one kind of clean part here is the background.
0: Oh, wow. That's very impressive for just having moved. (laughs) Well, chaos just
1: like New York state politics at the moment. So let's put this in the context of political scandals and resignations. How big of a deal is this?
3: I mean, it's a big deal to the extent it affects one of the largest states and how that state will be governed and who might win the next election there. People will say that it's a big step for the Me Too movement, if you will, but again, Political parties can be pretty hypocritical about that stuff. Here is a case where you have a Democrat replaced by another Democrat because Kathy Hochul is a lieutenant governor, and then will presumably be replaced by another Democrat or Kathy Hochul. We'll talk about that in 2022 because the Republican Party, which once nominated moderate candidates in New York, is kind of a big mess right now. And there are a lot of Democrats who don't like Cuomo for lots of reasons, ranging from his interpersonal demeanor to the fact that He is more moderate than some Democrats would like, although I think sometimes less than he's accused of.
1: So are you suggesting that things might not have panned out this way if Cuomo were not to be replaced by a Democrat?
3: I mean, the volume of accusations was pretty bad. So objectively, there's like all types of merit for it. But the circumstances, the way it was rolled out kind of matter.
1: Right, And we've talked about what happened in Virginia, essentially, where Justin Fairfax, who was accused of rape, kept his job until the end of his term because they were in a situation, three Democrats, where if they all resigned and they were all facing scandals, then a Republican would have been governor of Virginia. Sarah and Jeffrey, how are you thinking about this resignation today in terms of broader history and how political scandals play out?
0: So I think the biggest takeaway here for me is that in some ways... The writing was on the wall in terms of the number of New Yorkers, both within the state legislature, but then also in Congress, who had broken with Cuomo. He had no allies, and the impeachment proceedings were already in place. The wheels were in motion there, where the state assembly was starting to get ready to have hearings, to gather evidence. Cuomo and his team had until Friday to submit their evidence. And it clearly seems as if it was headed in a direction where impeachment was on the table and his team was not going to be able to stop that you <laughs> This was a self-motivated resignation, as they often are. And to Nate's point, you can't separate the electoral politics from this. The fact that New York is a blue state makes his resignation easier than, say, in Virginia, as we've discussed before. I think the extent to which public opinion turned against Cuomo was bigger than perhaps originally anticipated. Last time on the podcast, we were talking about a Marist College poll released a day after the AG report that found 50 percent of New Yorkers either wanted him to resign or to be impeached if he didn't resign. Two other polls released within two days of that found similar findings, right? A whopping 70 percent actually in a Quinnipiac poll said he should resign. And I point to that because in June leading up to this, when we were waiting for the AG report, 42 percent of New Yorkers did tell pollsters that, hey, you know, I think this investigation is going to uncover evidence that showed that Cuomo committed acts of sexual harassment. But only 23% said from that they wanted him to resign. Clearly, post the report, we saw a huge shift. It wasn't 23% saying they wanted Cuomo to resign. It was 60%, 70%. So I think there are politics of this in the sense that a Democrat will still be governor in New York, making history as the first woman governor. But it also seems as if the allegations and the weight of them were too much for Cuomo to survive in office.
2: My takeaways are are similar in that. This has governing consequences. And I also think it's an interesting example of or just another interesting example of when you've lost all your allies and you have public opinion against you, even within your own party. You know, these polls showing a majority of Democrats even supporting Cuomo resigning and leaders in the state legislature basically supporting the idea of impeachment, pursuing it at that point, knowing that sort of the the game is over for you, and you're probably going to get impeached and removed from office. So you get out ahead of that by resigning. And we've seen that many times in American history. You might think of Richard Nixon in, in 1974 or something as president. So it's just sort of another example of that, where you've lost your allies over time, and even public opinion, even within your own party, has moved against you to such an extent that it's sort of untenable. You have your own president, From your own party calling for your resignation. And so being in that position was obviously a difficult one for Cuomo and he he resigned to get out of it.
3: And you do have the report kind of serving as a focal point, which is sometimes lacking, because these allegations have been piling up for a long time, but like, okay, things pile up and there's nothing to focus your attention and the state's dealing with other types of emergencies, and you can kind of bluff your way through it sometimes. But if you have a focal point and then you have a whole critical mass of people saying, this gives us the evidence that we need to actually contemplate impeachment and actually call for his resignation. I mean, that's, that's important. That kind of differentiates cases where people wear these scarlet letters for bad behavior. Again, this behavior really is on the pretty bad side. And at some level, the
1: objective context and facts matter. I mean, so Cuomo has been pretty defiant here, his lawyer as well, of course, during the press conference today even. And he essentially framed his decision as one to the benefit of New Yorkers that he his instincts were to fight, but that he was going to step aside because New York had to deal with other challenges and didn't want to tie up the state in an impeachment process. OK, so that's the way he's framing it. Why do politicians, particularly in this case, where he's arguing that his behavior was from a different era, he didn't understand entirely the ways norms have changed, whatever. So why doesn't he want to go into an impeachment trial and make the case that he's made before the public in that setting?
2: My thought is that impeachment and removal could even look worse than resignation. I mean, Eric Greitens, you know, had a sexual harassment more than that situation in Missouri with a Republican-controlled legislature, so same party, as an analogy here in 2018. And he saw he was going to get impeached and removed, and so he resigned. So there seems to be a pattern where when the writing is sort of on the wall, oftentimes you see someone resign rather than go through that actual impeachment and removal process. Some of that might even have, I, I mean, I, I don't even know all the specifics on this, but I don't know if there are other ramifications of being impeached and removed. I'm not Going through that entire process perhaps also can bring out more dirty laundry. So, if you're Andrew Cuomo, maybe it's simpler to, to resign and avoid having even more stuff out there about you potentially. So, maybe there's even like a weird damage control aspect to this where you've been governor for almost what, three terms and you're looking for a way out without it being a complete and utter, I don't know, shellacking of your legacy. Even if your legacy is sort of shot, I guess it's a way of making it so it's not even more shot.
0: I think Jeffrey's hitting on an important point too—that this wouldn't be a Republican-controlled legislature leading the impeachment proceedings. It's his own party, and I think as we've seen, you know, on the last podcast we were talking about, instead of running through who supports opening impeachment proceedings against Cuomo, let's talk about who doesn't. That is where the conversation was. So I think for him, who is ultimately very invested in the governorship and his reputation, it's probably what ground will he gain in impeachment. Let him at least go out on resignation on his own terms
3: also in new york i just looked this up like for the u.s federal offices you can be banned from running for office again if you're impeached in new york so if he thought he could make some comeback sooner or later then he wouldn't want to be impeached
1: are you already talking about cuomo 2022 nate i wouldn't think it'd be 2022
3: but you know 2026 or something
0: We were talking about an earlier uh, poll of 2022. He does lead in that one, 26%. But it just, that seems to me, it has to be name recognition. Like, there's no way he runs here in 2022,
1: right? You know, the last time we talked about this, when the AG report initially came out, we talked a lot about how the American public and voters within the two parties view sexual harassment and sexual misconduct claims, how serious they think they are, whether they're willing to vote for people who engage in that kind of behavior. As I mentioned, Cuomo has tried to frame this as the culture has shifted. I maybe haven't kept up with the times, but I always felt that what I was doing was appropriate. I'm curious, in your eyes, to what extent has the culture shifted? Are we living in a different moment today with regards to how in particular men treat women in the workplace and the expectations that we have. Has there been a paradigm shift over the past, you know, five or maybe even 10 years? Or is that like a rhetorical tool that people use to divert blame for behavior that was never acceptable?
0: I definitely think there's been a cultural shift. You even see that just in terms of polls asking Americans about how important they think sexual harassment is in terms of an issue. You know, we talked about this Gallup poll last time on the podcast. 80% of Americans now say it's a huge issue and it had been in the 60s, in the early 2000s. So there clearly is a shift happening there.
3: We talked a little bit about Al Franken's resignation earlier. I think that may have kind of like I don't know if I'd say like a high watermark, but a lot of Democrats criticized Gillibrand after the fact or said Franken should run again. I think that marked the limits of the zero tolerance claim. But Cuomo had a more numerous and wider ranging set of allegations and I think was kind of over that Franken line, I guess. Like Franken was kind of right up to the point where like Democrats seem split almost 50-50 on whether it was a good idea or not.
1: I mean, let me ask this another way. If this had happened in the year of 1999, do you think Cuomo would have resigned?
2: Well, Bill Clinton was president, so no. Yeah. Like, frankly, I think this has changed in that way. Like, a lot of people now look back on Clinton and wonder, why wasn't he impeached and removed? I mean, I think there has been a cultural shift in that respect.
0: There definitely has been a cultural shift. I think the other thing here too, though, is the report really stressed this idea of like, yes, there was sexual harassment. Yes, there were 11 women, but it was also just like this really toxic work environment. And I do think in addition to people not tolerating sexual harassment in the workplace, there's also just like, if you're an asshole at work, that's also less acceptable now. And this kind of documented for Cuomo, some of his critics' harshest allegations against him in the sense of like, he's just not a great guy to work with. And so I think that feeds into this as well, that it is expressing Democrats' unwillingness to tolerate sexual harassment as a party and that mattering to voters, particularly in a blue state like New York, where there's not electoral risk for them to push someone out. But I also think it is a reflection of his brash style of bullying politics caught up with them, too.
1: Yeah. In fact, a quote from the report itself talked about working in his office was to experience the dichotomy between fear and flirtation. And the workplace assholes and sexual misconduct have certainly been a focus of the past five years or so. So I think to a certain extent, this does mark a changing of the times. I do want to talk about what's going to happen next, including with 2022. But first...
0: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
1: Before we get ahead of ourselves and talk about 2022, let's talk about what is going to happen now. We've mentioned here that the Lieutenant Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, is going to take over as governor. That is a historic distinction. She will be the first woman governor of New York state. What else do we know about Kathy Hochul in terms of her governing style, how she might lead, you know, a big state that's had a lot of COVID related and COVID economic related challenges?
2: I mean, I think you would say Hochul's background at least is one of center left centrist. She sort of came on the scene by winning a special election in a district near Buffalo that was actually fairly Republican and winning a special election there in kind of a weird three-way race. But she won the seat and then she lost re-election in 2012 after redistricting because it became much more Republican-leaning than it had been. So she won on red turf to start her career out. And then when she got into statewide politics in 2014, when she ended up becoming lieutenant governor, I think she may have been maneuvering to become more well-known statewide, to build a brand. And she survived uh primary challenge from her left in twenty eighteen from Jermaine Williams, who I believe now is the public advocate of the city of New York, by just a few points, but she she did win that race in the Democratic primary. So I think she would be seen as eh, establishment center left, not a progressive person, at least within you think about the splits within the Democratic Party.
3: She is has the ideological profile, the sort of Democrat who tends to win in New York, which is actually not all that liberal a primary electorate, in part because the Republican Party has been decimated in New York, especially in the city, but to some extent like in Westchester County and so forth too. You tend to have a lot of the moderates are Democrats. They vote in the Democratic primary. The GOP does not seem to be capable of nominating compelling statewide (laughs) candidates, although they might have a few to pick from and so forth. And so that profile is pretty good. It's not a case like a Senate incumbent where they're just appointed out of nowhere, right? She won election to the lieutenant governorship. She has relationships in office. She's kind of a Cuomo proxy. And there are a lot of New York Democrats who don't like Cuomo's conduct, but were perfectly happy with his policies. And so that's why I think she's the favorite with Tish James, probably a solid number two.
0: I could see Hochul's proximity to Cuomo, considering she's been part of his administration since the second term, maybe working against her. The Emerson poll I was talking about earlier that asked voters whether Cuomo should resign or if the state assembly should impeach him also found voters were pretty uncertain about Hochul. 32% said they were unsure if they had confidence. Only 28% said they were confident in her. And 24% said they were not at all confident in her. 16% Never heard of her. So, you know, there is perhaps some name recognition issues and biases there. But I actually think, and granted, this was done much earlier in this year when the scandal around Cuomo was first coming to air. But James is found in poll and poll again as like one of the most popular politicians in the state. A whopping 82 percent had said that they approved her in a Quinnipiac poll from earlier this year. And like Cuomo, she actually had a strong amount of support among black voters in the state. And so I think could potentially pose a really credible threat to Hochul if she runs. I realize the optics of that, given that Hochul being governor now is history-making, perhaps makes a James run not the best thing to do, but you know, a primary is where you fight that out. And I could see that happening.
3: It's interesting because like, obviously, I think part of what will take place now, right, is you'll have a leak war where if there's anything that suggests Hochul was overly supportive of Cuomo, it'll appear in the Times or the Post or wherever. And we'll kind of learn that one way or another.
1: The leak war has already, I think, started. Her office told the New York Times, I assume through a leak, but it appeared in the pages of the New York Times that she has not spoken with Cuomo since February. So I think that effort to create a distance between their two legacies and public personas has already begun and began, in fact, in February.
3: Part of what I wonder, though, is Cuomo had very few friends by the end of it. I wonder if that necessarily means people who are not Cuomo's friends are Chis as allies, necessarily. There's some sense in which, like, if she is seen as the one who took out Cuomo, I think there could be some nastiness coming toward her from people who were Cuomo's allies, which maybe doesn't matter.
1: I mean, I think that's believable. We saw that within the Democratic Party, there were a lot of daggers pointed towards Kirsten Gillibrand when she ran for president from Democrats who were upset that she had pushed Al Franken to resign. So that would not be the first time that a high-profile woman who played a role in a man resigning over sexual misconduct accusations was blamed, essentially, in the process. If she runs, I think
3: it might be a fairly even contest. If you're setting odds, you know, I think she's probably 50-50 to run, and so that's why I would kind of if I were let's say I'm sports book, I would make Hochul the favorite.
2: Yeah, I also think the next few months will obviously be very important for Hochul because I think as Sarah was getting at, there's a lot of uncertainty about her. I mean, for instance, in the uh, Quinnipiac poll that found you know, 70% of New Yorkers wanting Cuomo to resign, only about half of them had an opinion of her. So obviously she's something of an unknown quantity. So that could play to her advantage if she can shape it right, maybe by leaking stories about how she hasn't talked to the governor in months and put some distance between her and Cuomo. But at the same time, obviously, if there are potential political enemies out there putting stuff out about her that could could shape public opinion as we head toward 2022 and actually having to make a decision about running or not. So that's something to keep in mind as well, is that she is something of an unknown quantity.
1: Yeah, Jeffrey, what do we know looking at past elections about how these kinds of things play out. When a lieutenant governor runs for the governorship or when an incumbent is only the incumbent because of a scandal and a resignation, et cetera, is that person still favored the same way that an incumbent would be?
2: Well, somewhat like appointed senators aren't as strong as elected incumbent senators uh, in terms of seeking their next election, in terms of their winning percentage, how well they do in primaries. Successor governors are people who rose to the job because of resignation or death. Uh, If they do run for a full term, they're still more likely than not to win. But compared to your standard elected incumbent governor, they have worse odds of winning historically, at least. So, you know, if Hochul runs, I think that sort of plays into what Nate's getting at, which is I think there's reason to look at her as something of a favorite at this very early point. But we also know historically that there could be cases where maybe she does lose her primary her losing the general election might be harder to see given the state of New York politics right now how weak the GOP is. But she got a really strong primary challenge from Tish James. Maybe James beats her. I mean, in 2018 in Kansas, different state, but just as an example, this is like the last time this happened. Jeff Collier had been lieutenant governor, became governor when Sam Brownback resigned. And then Collier ended up losing to Chris Kobach very narrowly in the Republican primary there. And then actually, the GOP ended up losing the governorship in November to Laura Kelly, who's going to be seeking reelection in Kansas in 2022. So you can have a situation where the successor incumbent, if you will, loses renomination. But more often than not, they win renomination. I mean, in recent years, we've had Kay Ivey in Alabama, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Henry McMaster in South Carolina, for example, Mike Parson in Missouri. So more often than not, they do win their party's nomination and then even go on to win the general.
3: Yeah, they're 10 for 13 since 2008, which I think partly reveals increased partisanship. You mean shipping.
1: lieutenant governors running for governor are 10 for 13? No, successors, gubernatorial oh, successors. successors following resignations,
3: which are usually lieutenant governors. Some states still have it, a lieutenant Wait. governor.
1: Thirteen governors have
3: resigned since 2008.
2: Yeah, Sarah Palin. Yeah,
3: not all under like Cuomo-like circumstances, yeah. right? You can get named an ambassador or something, or get appointed to the Senate and resign.
2: Yeah, Grace Politano beca- took on Department of Homeland Security, for instance, in Arizona, which made Jan Brewer governor. So it's it, sometimes it's that kind of thing too. Terry Branstad in Iowa became ambassador to China.
3: It is different than senators in the sense that, again, these are either. Lieutenant governors are in some states secretaries of state or presidents of the state legislature, depending on the state's rule. So they have shown some electoral skill. They have built relationships. Also, when you're the governor, you can't be a backbencher from day one, especially in a time where we still have like COVID and everything in New York. You have to actually govern, and that can give you the auspices of incumbency a little bit more. So we'll see. I mean, she has an opportunity to like define the race. I mean, I know we can do more research on like how often do they face competitive fields versus not.
2: Yeah, that's a mixed bag, I think, in recent times, because sometimes there's sort of just people rally around that successor and you don't really have a competitive field to develop. But then other times it could be actually a crowded race. And in a pretty blue state like New York, if you win the nomination, you're probably going to get elected governor. So that's also a compelling reason for someone to take a shot at beating Hochul, you know, someone like James.
0: Right. Or even if it's not James, I would have to think just given what we've seen play out in Virginia and other primaries in the U.S., like there will be a tension between more moderate candidates, progressive candidates, particularly in a state like New York.
3: I think Hochul would have a high floor because of her incumbency status and the Cuomo, like Cuomo and policy voter, would probably still tend to prefer her. So a divided field probably suits her perfectly well if you had just one or two credible challengers, then it gets, I think, more up in the air.
2: I also do wonder if Tish James really is sort of a progressive challenger. You know, I think the thought is that, in, especially in some recent races in New York statewide politics where you had sort of a progressive challenger against a more establishment center left type of Democrat, I'm not sure that a Hochul versus James matchup would quite fit that dichotomy. You know, thinking about Cuomo versus Nixon. Right. I
1: mean, I think Tish James is generally thought of as a moderate or center left candidate herself.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: So I think we were somewhat maybe joking earlier, Nate, about Cuomo's political future. He still has eighteen and a half million dollars in campaign funds, and on kind of his way out the door as he was resigning, he struck a very defiant tone. Do people actually think that Cuomo was leaving public life? I mean, maybe he will get a Show on CNN like Elliot
3: Spitzer. The Cuomo brothers. (laughs) Cuomo brothers. Oh, God.
2: (laughs) Galen, to your point, having that much money in your campaign account makes it hard to entirely write off the idea. And he is in his early 60s. You might think he's older, but age-wise, he's not out of the game by any means. But I, I think it's hard to imagine him running in 2022, but wait a few years and maybe take a shot in 2026 or something. I mean, who knows? We're we're very much spitballing here. But with that much money in your campaign account, it's going to just linger out there as a possibility, I imagine.
0: And there was definitely, you know, before the AG report came out, the expectation he would run again to best his own father in the state who had served for three terms. He was going to do the fourth. Right. And I think, you know, at least speaking for both Democrats and kind of the media, there's always been this obsession with Cuomo's style of politics. He's brash. He says what's on his mind. There's this romanticized idea of that he can be a leader of the party. We particularly saw that in how he was handling COVID-19 in New York last year and his daily press briefings and kind of like the breathless coverage around that, where even there was talk that, oh, President Biden might have won the nomination, but maybe it should actually be Cuomo.
1: Remember, that was last year, like one year ago at this time, people were talking about like approximately at this time, like what about for VP? You know, maybe if Biden can't do it, Cuomo can. Crazy how quickly things change.
2: Wiley Coyote over a cliff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think this episode, you know, it kind of crystallize something that's been well known about his governance style. It's just that he can be a bully. Like that's why we have seen a lot of his allies kind of leave him here in a lurch. There isn't anyone really right now in government backing Cuomo. That said though, there does seem to be this obsession in the American electorate among the outsider politician, the politician who will speak up to the government. Maybe Cuomo tries to rebrand himself in that way. I think, though, you know, given kind of his family's legacy within the state, that's a little harder for him to navigate. But, yeah, I I doubt this is the end of the line for Cuomo.
1: I want to wrap up here. Perhaps we should mention as we end this podcast that there was big news out of Washington today as well, which is that the Senate passed a trillion dollar infrastructure bill on a bipartisan vote. It was 69 for 30 against That's a pretty big deal itself. I think we can talk about it more in the coming weeks on Monday, for example, and where this goes in the house. But since we're podcasting today, does anyone have thoughts on that before we close?
0: Well, I say get ready, America. We are going to have a fight about the debt limit coming to you this fall. Um, To your point, Kaylin, I think it is a big historic moment that Democrats were able to push through a key part of their agenda and on a bipartisan level. I think where the real fault lines that we have yet to see tested are the 3.5 trillion reconciliation bill that they're going to try to force through just as Democrats later this fall. And I think you're already seeing signaling among Republicans that the party's spending too much. Polls have suggested, whether it's inflation or the cost of living, as we were talking about on Monday, that voters are more concerned about this as an issue. And the House, of course, isn't actually going to vote on this bill and get it to Biden's desk until that other $3.5 trillion bill is ready as well. So it's going to be a while before voters actually see any of the benefits of this bill. I thought that was kind of an interesting move to tie the two together. That means you're actually delaying something that could be signed into law now, so I don't think this is over. It definitely is a bipartisan accomplishment for the administration. And I think they will tout it as such, but it's not over yet.
2: It's infrastructure week. Finally. <laughs> but of course, naturally, something else happened when it was infrastructure week because that's just how it always goes, right? I mean, that
1: is the joke of infrastructure week, that's right? That's
2: right. Yeah, yeah. And it, was, it came true this time when it seemingly wasn't going to play out that way, so.
1: All right. Well, that's an end for it. Today's emergency podcast and for today's infrastructure week podcast. uh, Thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Jeffrey.
0: Thanks, Galen. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bittigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.